the world can be very inaccessible to people with ADHD, but we blame ourselves. Oh, I'm bad at reading. I'm bad at this. I'm bad at that. When it's really an accessibility issue, we wouldn't feel like we were bad at so many things if the world was set up just a little bit differently. Welcome to the ADHD Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm an ADHD professional who has been working in the field for 10 years. I'm on the organizing committee for the International Conference on ADHD and a board member of the Men's ADHD Support Group. Registration is now open for the winter 2024 session of the ADHD Essentials Parenting Groups. This round is focused on parents raising teens and begins February 12th. We will meet for one hour twice a week for eight weeks. The groups meet on Mondays and Wednesdays. One section is at 12 p.m. Eastern and the other is at 5 p.m. Eastern. The groups are built to improve the cooperation and relationship between you and your teen. We'll do that with ADHD-friendly strategies that improve communication, support independence, and reduce the overall anxiety in the home. Over the past five years, I've helped hundreds of parents address the challenges they face as a result of ADHD and anxiety. I'm sure I can help you too. Here's past attendee Troy sharing some of his experience. I actually woke up thinking about this, and and I just have to say that... um, I think that the feel and the air and, and the just the whole vibe in our house has changed. Every time we finish one of these sessions, it's almost like I feel closer to my kid. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. He's not even uh, there. Right, and I mean, yeah, I think, yeah. And it's like, I always wanna just, just wanna go and, and, and hug him after we finish these sessions. You have given me permission um, just like, chill out a little bit with being uh, with being a parent, um, and just give him space and give him room. Just be a little bit more accepting. And so, yeah, I mean, I I I also I'm just sort of like in in awe of just uh, how wonderful uh, a father he must be, and that certainly has an impact on me. I really enjoy these sessions, and I get a lot out of out of them for sure. Check out the link in the show notes for more information about these groups or email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com to set up a free information call. I also want to take a second to talk about a couple of upcoming events for the Men's ADHD Support Group. On January 7th and 12th, the Men's ADHD Support Group will be hosting Dr. William Dodson. Dr. Dodson is a pioneer in the treatment of ADHD and he will be sharing research-based information about the disorder, as well as tips and strategies for how to manage it. These virtual events are open to everyone and will be followed by a robust Q&A. Dr. Dodson will be presenting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, January 7th, and at 2 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, the 14th. Check out the link in the show notes to register. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we talk to Jessica McCabe, host of How to ADHD on YouTube, and the author of a new book that came out yesterday. Jessica talks to us about that very book, aptly titled How to ADHD. We discuss the importance of accessibility for ADHD folks, divergent versus convergent thinking, why trying harder is not the answer, and how ADHD affects us socially. I highly recommend checking out both the book and this episode. All right, let's get rolling. 
I am Jessica McCabe. I am the creator and host of the YouTube channel, How to ADHD, and now the author of the book, How to ADHD, An Insider's Guide to Working with Your Brain, Not Against It. This book is phenomenal. I'm really blown away by how strong it is and how honest it is and how much it has given me an insight into my friend who I don't get to talk to enough. Before I jump into why the book is amazing, one of the things that I, is a strength of this book that I just want to call attention to is the nature of being a person in social media and being an influencer or an advocate on specifically YouTube, where you've got a lot of people who are watching you do your thing and talk about ADHD and work to help people improve their lives, who probably feel like they know you and don't because they've never actually seen you in person or spent any time with you outside of YouTube. And this book opens up your experience and your life in a way that a YouTube channel doesn't, or at least your YouTube channel doesn't. How did that feel, that process? Kind of what was that like in the writing of this book? It was really scary um, and very intuitive of you to pick up on that. <laughs> um, when I first started my channel, I deliberately kept it pretty anonymous. Like I was supposed to be a blank slate. The channel wasn't about me. It was called How to ADHD. I didn't even tell anybody my name for like six months. Um, they finally kept asking and I was like, oh, hi, I'm Jessica. But really it was about putting the information about how to cope with an ADHD brain out there into the world, not only for me, but for other people. So I was doing science communication. I was trying to understand how the ADHD brain worked and then explain it through my personal experience. But the only things that I shared about my personal experience were ADHD related. I didn't really share a lot about me, who I was, my journey as it was differentiated from other people's journeys. I, I kind of shared the things about myself that I knew that I would have in common with other people. And so when I was asked to write a memoir, that was really scary for the same reason that starting to do vlogs on the channel was scary, which is, well, now I'm showing you me. Now I'm showing you the parts of me that maybe we don't have in common. It's a little bit more vulnerable. I'm telling you more about my life and trying to figure out where that balance should be because I think there was a part of me that was scared that people wouldn't like me anymore. You know, they'll, they'll like me as long as I have the same experience as them, you know, offering them tips about ADHD. But like, as soon as I tell people who I am as a person, I think that little, uh, we've talked about this. We t I think we talked about at the conference, like that seventh grade version of me that really was not popular and nobody liked was scared that nobody would like her now that it was a little bit more unfiltered. And then there was also the safety issue. Like how much do I share, you know, there was one point at which I was almost immediately behind schedule with the book. And my first instinct was, okay, well, I'll just share more. I'll just share, share more of my life and like the really juicy, interesting details. And like, I'll work, you know, nights and weekends. And that immediate, like, I will just sacrifice everything. <laughs> like I will just have no boundaries and do whatever anybody else wants because I messed up and I'm already behind schedule. I was like, that's not a good thought. So I talked to my therapist and she's like, how about we have some boundaries? And I was like, okay. Like I sat down and really thought about how much to share and what I decided to share because I did want to, I did want to get to know my community better. I wanted them to get to know me better, but I wanted to do it in a bit of a safe way. So I decided to share what I would share if I was sitting down with a friend at a coffee shop where I was talking to a friend, but also there are strangers walking by. So like maybe don't share everything. I, I had to decide how much to share. And I also had to decide how much of myself I was willing to give in terms of my nights, my weekends, my sanity, my health. And I set some boundaries around that too. 
And I was like, okay, I can work late a few nights a week, but not like every night. Um, I still need to take breaks. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So that that was part of it too. But I am I am very excited and, and nervous to see how people respond to to this because I do share some really personal, intimate details about my life. This book, for me at least, was not a book that I read. It's a book that I fell into. Aw, it sucked you in. That's it really, did. thank you. That's the best compliment ever. It's very engaging. It's very like you, you just fall into this book. So I don't think you need to worry about how people will react to it. Think you're all set. Think it's going to be great. There's a few reasons why that is. And since I always take it upon myself to put the books over as much as possible when I have folks on here talking about books, because I, I don't have people talk about their books if I'm not willing to go over the top about how amazing they are. <laughs> and yes, you're, you're one of my best friends in the ADHD space. I would want to put your book over anyway, but this is an easy one to put over. Even if I didn't know you, I would still feel this way about the book. It's incredibly engaging. Chapter one that I want to play with a little bit in, the, in a few minutes you really talk about growing up and what it was like having ADHD without it being understood on your end and, and the ways that it kind of tripped you up and made things difficult and the patterns that it established in you moving forward that you've since been working to undo. And that chapter, especially chapter one, is incredibly relatable. And I really think it's a critical chapter for folks who are listening to this podcast to read. If you don't read any of the rest of the book, You've got to get through chapter one and you have to look at the toolbox to understand why your kid is doing some of the things that they're doing. And that's why we're going to go there in a, in a minute. We're going to talk about that in depth. But before we do, one of the things that I really want to call attention to is the structure of the book. And I, I always do this, but yours is a little more intentional, I think. I think a lot of the authors that come on this on my show are like, well, I want it to be ADHD friendly. But for you, it's like, it's such a genuine, this book needs to be ADHD friendly because that's who you are and that's what you're modeling for the community and that's what you want to bring to the community, that it does it in a way that is so smooth. It's so ADHD friendly, you won't even notice how ADHD friendly it is, if that makes sense. That's what I'm hoping for. And I fought, I fought really hard for that. Um, I tried to keep it conversational and easy to understand. One of the best tips that I ever heard when you're writing a book is to presume ignorance and intelligence. So assume the people you're speaking to are smart, but also that they know nothing because you don't know everybody's coming in from with, with a different uh, amount of knowledge. Um, and so you assume that they don't know anything. So you kind of start from scratch, but you also assume that they're smart and they're going to pick it up really quickly. So that's the way that I wrote the book. But in terms of making it ADHD friendly, I tried to, as much as I can, because I am verbose, I tried to keep the sentences short. I tried to make sure that there weren't any long blocks of text, because to me, that's that makes something inaccessible. If I open a book, I don't look at how long the book is. I don't even really consider that much what the book is about. I open it to a random spread of pages. And if there are blocks of text with no breaks, I'm like, I can't read this. It's just not accessible. And so I made sure that every page had something breaking it up. There's bullet points or there's little boxes, you know, with quotes that are that are pulled out that I wanted to highlight or whatever it is. There's there's a drawing or there's something on every page. I think almost all of the pages to make it a little bit easier to read. There's lots of white space, which my, my publisher was probably not super happy about. But I'm like, I cannot, I straight up told them at one point, I said, if this book is not ADHD friendly, I can't promote it because I 
care about accessibility for this community. I cannot say, go buy this book that you will not be able to read. I was like, I get that, you know, we're going to have like 50, 100 pages more in this book than would be in, you know, in a book with the same amount of words typically. But I need that white space. We need to have this text visually broken up because this is a pretty dense book. I put everything (laughs) that I learned about ADHD over the last seven, eight years, I crammed it all in one book. And not just that, but also quotes from the community. It's part how-to, part memoir, there's science communication, there's there's anecdotes, there's so much crammed into this book. It was a very difficult thing to make it ADHD friendly, but it was so, so important to me that it was because it does not matter how useful the information is if we can't access it. Part of why you fall into this book is because of that white space. I'm going to put on my English teacher hat and play with that for a second because there's a few things that happen. One, the white space just makes it easier to read words and letters and things are spaced out better to be able to process the information. But the other thing that happens that I think is important for folks with ADHD is because there's a little more white space, you progress through the pages faster. Mm. So you feel like you're accomplishing more. And that's amazing. I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, that's part of it. Like it is so discouraging when you try to read a book and it takes you three freaking minutes to get through like a paragraph or you know a day to get through three pages it's it doesn't feel like you're making progress and i i'm like that too i'm impatient and i want to feel like i'm accomplishing something i i hadn't thought about that part but thank you yeah it happened to me i was i sat down to read the book and within minutes i was like oh i'm already on page 10. wow a lot of that is it's just easy to read right your writing style your method of communication is really fluid and gentle and easy to process. But probably also that white space helped me get to page 10 in not a very long period of time. And that honestly encouraged me to keep going. That makes me so happy. And I'm glad that we're talking about this because it's not just about my book. It's about, in general, the world can be very inaccessible to people with ADHD, but we blame ourselves. Oh, I'm bad at reading. I'm bad at this. I'm bad at that. When it's really an accessibility issue. And if we made the entire world just a little more ADHD friendly, we wouldn't feel so incompetent. We wouldn't feel like we were bad at so many things if the world was set up just a little bit differently. But our first instinct is to blame ourselves or to think that it must be that we're not trying hard enough. Yeah. That makes me really sad. I thought that I, you know, I knew that I loved reading as a kid, but as an adult, I was like, oh, I guess I just don't have time anymore. I guess I'm just bad at this. I guess, I don't know, like maybe adult books are just too hard for me. And I didn't realize like, no, it's because when you're a kid, there's more white space on the page. That's it. That's it. (laughs) There's shorter, there's shorter sentences, shorter paragraphs, more white space on the page. And that makes a difference. Staying with the structure of the book and talking about the ADHD friendly nature of it. Another strategy that you're using to keep this ADHD friendly is that you've got each chapter broken down into sections that are your experience, then what you learned, the toolbox, and then an ending anecdote. You even call it out in the introduction of the book. You're like, this is how to read this book. This is how it's going to work, which is another ADHD-friendly strategy. And it was also ADHD-friendly for me. And that was an important part of it because it was not only like, okay, people need to be able to read this book, but I need to be able to write this book. And I had so many ideas and ADHD brains are so good at divergent thinking, right? Like coming up with lots of different ideas and all these different ways of problem solving and and approaching a situation, but we're not as good, generally speaking, at convergent thinking, which is narrowing those down. So often we needed some sort of external structure to help us do that. And so for my channel, what it was from the beginning was you know, I could brain dump all of my ideas, but then I would have to stick them into some sort of format so that I could 
say things in a way that made sense to people. I had to have a way of narrowing it down. And so no matter what I wrote in my brain dump of all of the cool things that I was learning about ADHD, I narrowed it down to four points. Introduce the problem, explain the problem, introduce the solution, explain the solution. And that was my structure and I used it for years. And it was super helpful for me because it was a flexible enough structure that it could contain anything that I wanted to share, but it was structured enough that I could make sense of my random jumble of thoughts. And so I realized I had to do something like that for the book. You know, four points seemed to work for me for the channel. So I was like, okay, how about four sections for each chapter? Um, and I thought about what I wanted to share. And when I wrote this book, I set out to, to give people what I had found, if I could, because this was such a powerful experience for me personally to go from having no idea how my brain worked and yeah, that first set of tools in, by the way, that first chapter is called how to fail at everything because I did. And my toolbox was not very effective or it could seem effective in the moment, but long-term did not, did not work well for me at all. I needed more tools, but that toolbox had a lot of like apologize and try harder and stuff like that. And that's, that's what I did. I wanted to put all of these things in one book. I wanted to give people the experience that I had somehow, right? I knew that it would be difficult to put in a book the experience that I got over seven years of learning how my brain worked and connecting with this community and stuff. But I wanted to as much as possible because it was such a powerful journey for me to take. I wanted to try and take people on that journey with me and give it to them a little bit faster so that maybe it didn't take them seven years to learn how to work with their brain, not against it. I thought about all of the things that had benefited me and had benefited this community and going from having no idea how our brains worked and just apologizing and trying harder to having a huge toolbox full of options and a better sense of self. There were many things that did that. It was the science communication. It was the understanding how our brains work and having language to describe that. So I knew I needed that SciComm section that like, here's what I learned. But I also knew that part of it was being able to resonate with somebody else's story and not feel like feeling like you're the only person in the world struggling with this. So I had you know, I decided to put the experience of at the top, like, so there's the experience of where I talk about what it was like for me to struggle with these things. And then the what I learned section. And then there's the toolbox, because that was a huge part of it was me learning new tools and stuff. And, you know, in the what I learned in the toolbox section, I also wanted quotes from the community, because that was a lot of how I learned. And that's how a lot of people ended up feeling more empowered too, because they would hear other people's stories, and they would hear how other people were implementing these tools, and that would give them ideas for what they could do. But then also, you know, because it was seven years of learning about this stuff, I didn't just learn it once. I, I often had a different perspective on it later. Some, somebody taught me something new about that subject later. And so I have an ending anecdote at, at the end of each one. And that's kind of like, I don't know, my vlogs <laughs> or, or, or something like I, I learned something new and I shared something new as kind of a reminder that there's not just one way to look at any of these things. And we're constantly still learning and growing. Let me pivot back to that chapter one toolbox because this in particular, I think is important for parents to hear. I'm going to read just the subheadings because these are the tools you were using before you understood your ADHD, before you were really the expert that you are now. And I think it'll they'll resonate with some parents. I know it resonated with me. It reminded me of middle school, Brendan, and it reminded me of some of the stuff I see my kids do that I'm working so hard to help them avoid. The tools that you talk about having used when you were younger were deny, 
I know even adult Brendan tries to use that one sometimes and has to fight against that urge. <laughs> yeah, pretend, pretend. This is fine. Nothing's wrong. I yeah. totally started on that project already. <laughs> like I, I totally manage my finances fine. I can go. I can afford to go out to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then apologize, beg. For me, it's more bargaining, but the same. That's the same idea. Try to do better next time, and try harder. Well, because that's what we always saw on our report cards growing up is, you know, so much potential needs to try harder. So, you know, it was one of the first things that we learned that we needed to do as if effort was the problem. It took me a long time to realize, oh, trying harder is not the answer if effort is not the problem. If you are already trying as hard as you can, trying harder is just going to burn you out. Those also connect to what you were talking about earlier about access and having a more ADHD-friendly environment. Because a lot of those are addressing the need for forgiveness and trying to avoid the rejection that we assume is going to come with a failure. It doesn't always come with the failure, but we generally think it will. Because if we're if we're denying that the failure happened, then we don't even need to be forgiven because everything is fine and nothing bad happened. And the apologizing only happened, by the way, like I would deny if I at all could, but the apologizing would always happen when it was clear <laughs> that like I had messed up and other people had to know about it. If I could, when somebody was on their, their way over, shove everything into, you know, random cupboards and drawers and, and make it look reasonably tidy, cool. And if I couldn't, then I had to apologize for the disaster that they were walking into. <laughs> That's basically how it goes for a lot of people with ADHD. You know, you, you pretend that, that it's fine or that you're not struggling or that you don't need help or whatever. And then if people end up finding out anyway, because you do let somebody down or it's clear that you do need the help, then it's just, yeah, it's just like go-to apologizing, even for things that often aren't your fault. And one of the ways that I've addressed that in my life with my family and with me is if you have permission to have ADHD, you don't really ever need forgiveness because it's okay. Like you messed up and that's not the end of the world. And that has been pretty powerful for me. I give myself permission to have ADHD all the time. And if I mess up and people get upset with me, I'm like, I get it that you're mad. I'm going to fix the problem that I caused, but I don't need to carry the fact that you're upset with me because I gave myself permission to have ADHD a long time ago. And it's, it's okay. I might feel bad that I messed up or that I upset somebody or something, but it doesn't stay with me as long as it used to because it's all right that I messed up. I have ADHD. That's supposed to happen sometimes. And I'll just try to help it not happen as much. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, like giving yourself permission to have ADHD. I, I, I put it different ways, and I think I put it this way in the book, too. Um, of course, you're going to struggle with things that people with ADHD struggle with. If you didn't, you wouldn't have ADHD. But there's something so beautiful about putting it that way, like giving yourself permission to have ADHD. That came much later in my journey, and it's still something I'm working on. As soon as you said you gave yourself permission to have ADHD, like something something just released in me, like this, <laughs> this tension just released um, because we live in a world that says it's not okay. And the world is allowed to do that, right? Like that's the other side of it is I'm like, yeah, I give the world permission to do that too. And I will just teach it to be better. Like we'll, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. No, you, you have permission to, to be who you are and the world has permission to, you know, to be how it is. And eventually we'll learn how to interface together a little more effectively, I think. What's the part of this book that you're the most excited to share? It depended on the date, right? And what chapter I was working on. There were so many chapters where I was like, this is it. This is like, this is, this is my, my masterpiece. This is my, this is like the thing where if people read nothing else and I want them to read this. And then I would see another chapter and I'd be working on that. And I'm like, 
this one. This is the chapter. I hope everybody reads this one. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know, but I am very, very proud of many of the chapters. I think maybe the stuff that you don't see in a lot of ADHD books, like there's a lot of stuff about focus and time management and executive function and all the ADHD books, but I got real deep toward the end um, into other things that ADHD impacts, into how it impacts our, our feelings and our emotion regulation and how because we have these big feelings, we can start to feel like our emotions themselves are the problem and stuff them down and hide them. And that can be really harmful for us. And so teaching people how to regulate their emotions in a way that that gives us permission to have them, to have these big feelings, I think was that was a really important chapter. And I, I talk about some really personal stuff, including some really dark moments in, in my own journey to learn how to cope with my feelings. Um, but the how to people chapter, I think, was the one that I was maybe most excited about because it's not something that I'd ever seen in a book about ADHD. Yeah. You know, let's talk about how it's hard for us to make friends and how do we build up our social supports because it's so important. Um, and we have so much research now saying that when it comes to being happy, that's what matters most. It's not the productivity. It's not how much money we make. It's, you know, how deep are our friendships? Do we feel like we belong? And I think that one of the biggest things that I'm hoping that people take away from this is like, you don't have to keep trying to fit in because as people with ADHD, that's often what we do. And we try to fit in as a way of belonging, but we end up feeling even more distant sometimes doing that. And so how to find a sense of belonging is not something that I had, I personally have read in any other book about ADHD. And I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things we talked about a lot a week and a half ago at the conference was the sense of belonging that we got from being there and how there's sort of two tiers to that. There's the tier of we're at this conference where everyone has ADHD and we feel connected in that way. But we also talked about how a lot of us are going to that conference to see our friends in the ADHD space and how much value we were getting from that, right? From spending time together. I loved the fact that I hung out with you like every day of that mm -hmm. conference. That was great. Um, and and hung out with Carolyn and saw Caroline a lot and Danny and and so many people, um, Will, Curb. When it comes to that larger community of ADHD creators, this book did some work there too. We connected last year and then we talked outside of the conference about this book and that led to other conversations about just sort of day-to-day -day stuff and regular life stuff. And I know you also spent a fair amount of time with Caroline McGuire, author of Why Will No One Play With Me, about that social component and the, the nature of ADHD and friendships and relationships. Can we play with that a little bit? Yeah. So Carolyn offered to be my mentor because she had published a book before and she did a really good job with this book. And, and it was also science communication and for this community. And she offered to mentor me and I was very shy about taking her up on that. But eventually I did like months, months after the offer, I was like, Hey, like, is it okay? Like, would you still do that? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, good. Cause I was, I was really afraid that I had messed up that social interaction. Cause I'm not really good at following up with people. I'm not really good at staying in touch with people. It's something I've always struggled with is, is 
this kind of like healthy reciprocity and friendship. I either am, am too much or not enough. And uh, as, as I put in the, in the book, projects are, are more forgiving. Um, projects don't care if you, if you neglect them for a month and then tackle them all in one day, people do. Um, so <laughs> it was, it was something that I, I've always struggled with is the social aspect of things. And so reaching out to her and saying, Hey, like, would you still do this? And her saying yes was a really cool thing. So we connected and we met almost every Friday for the entire time that I was writing this book. And we would talk about what I was struggling with and what I needed help with. And at one point I realized, Oh, I don't, I don't need help. Like talking through, you know, Hey, what do you think about this? Or what about me phrasing this like that? I need help with an entire freaking chapter because I got to the how to people chapter. And I was like, this is really important to, to put in here. Oh my God, I don't know how to people. I, oh no, <laughs> like I've learned, I've spent seven years learning about motivation and time management and executive function and sleep and, and all of these other things that ADHD impacts, but I haven't actually learned how to make friends. And I kind of cheated in a way because I do have this community that I got to connect with and, and find this sense of belonging with. And and I got so many of my social needs met just from chatting with people online that um, I kind of got to dodge the whole like needing to make friends in person thing. But after my mom died and I had moved to a new city and stuff, I, I kind of found the limits of that, of connecting with just my community or just people online and realized I, I can't get out of the in-person part of friendships without missing out on an important part of life. And so I turn to Caroline because she knows how to make friends. She's been in this space talking about how important this is for like 18 years back when everybody was like, no, 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 no. Focus productivity. Like eh, this doesn't matter. Friends don't matter. And now she's like, so the research says that it does. And everybody's like, oh my God, it does. We need friends. So Caroline's been working on this for 18 years. And so I turned to her and said, Hey, can you actually write this chapter with me? Can you, can you help me? Because I, I don't know what to include here. There isn't enough research um, either. So she's like, yes. So we had so many conversations about, about friendships and how to make friendships. And, and I learned a lot from her about how the, the mindset with which we approach friendships is, is a big aspect of this. It's not actually the ADHD, you know, intrusive behaviors. Um, it's not, it's not the interrupting or the, um, showing up late that really hurts our friendships as an adult. It's the 15 anxious text messages we send when we get home, apologizing and over-explaining and seeking reassurance that flags us as needy or weird or too much. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> like, I think so many of us with ADHD are like, oh, I want to make friends. Therefore, let me change all of my behaviors and not have ADHD anymore. When, first of all, it's not possible, right? Like we can only mask that for so long before our ADHD is going to come out. But also like that was never the problem. Maybe in school when everybody actually do, does have to fit in and you're really checking each other and seeing like who's weird and who stands out and who fits in and stuff like that. But as adults, like we're allowed to be weird. Like we're, al <laughs> we're allowed to be quirky. We're allowed to be late. There's a lot more grace, I think, in adult friendships than, than there is in childhood because when you're an adult is kind of the, the time where everybody's like, oh man, like that person is different and unique and weird. And that's cool. Like now I want to yeah. hang out with that person because they have something unique about them. Right. You know, that was really important for me to understand, but yeah, I, I started digging deeper. Like she gave me the courage to kind of wade into this pool. And then I started coming to her with stuff. I'm like, Brene Brown says this and you know, and there's disability advocates. Judith Snow talks about how to build up your circle of friends. And I just kept coming to her with stuff and we, we would talk through it. And I'm, I'm so proud of how that, how that chapter turned out. It was a really cool collaboration. 
One thing that you're making me think of is an idea that I've been playing with lately is trying to look at rejection as a gift. If someone is rejecting us for a job, for a friendship, for a romantic relationship, then we don't have to keep forcing it anymore. It's clear communication. We don't have to wade into something that isn't going to work. This isn't the thing that's going to work for them. And if it's not going to work for them, it's not going to work for me either eventually. And potentially I'm going to keep trying to mask and keep trying to be someone that I'm not, even if it's not neurodevelopmental masking, right? Even if it's just like, no, I love hockey. I swear. I don't like hockey. Hockey's not a thing (laughs) I'm into. I would be willing to try it and see if I liked it, but like, maybe I do, maybe I don't. And if I don't like it and this person's big into it, then maybe we don't hang out. Right. And what you're talking about here is a mindset shift. And I do talk about rejection sensitivity in that chapter and how a lot of times what we do to avoid rejection is change our behavior, but it's the mindset that often needs to shift and that can help with that rejection sensitivity. So what you're talking about is changing it so you see it as a gift if somebody rejects you, that probably makes it a little less painful because you're like, oh, okay, cool. This wasn't going to be a good fit. There are other ways to to approach it too. And one of the big mindset shifts that I had that I talk about in the book is how I used to go around thinking that like, Friendship is a one-step process that relies on them liking me today, right? Like this one interaction is going to make or break whether or not we are friends. And I had to shift that a little bit because that's a lot of pressure. And if somebody is even the slightest bit, like doesn't seem like they're into me right now, I'm like, oh my God, all is lost. Like they don't want to be friends with me and this is the worst. I had to shift my mindset and understand that friendship is a multi-step process that relies on not them liking me, but that relies on connection, right? Like we don't always even like our friends. Like there are times where we're like, oh my God, Steve's annoying. Uh, but we still, we're still friends with them, right? So it doesn't yeah. even d- depend on them liking you or everything about you. It relies on connection over time. So friendship is a multi-step process that relies on connection over time. And we have research to back that up too. The more time we spend with people, the more we like them and the closer that bond becomes. And knowing that was really helpful because what it meant is I could go into a single interaction and not feel so hurt if they didn't like me in that moment or they didn't respond perfectly positively to me in that moment because I could kind of zoom out and see the bigger picture that this is like a process that happens over time. And also that person that just rejected me, that was not my friend, right? Like they are not my friend yet. We are in the circle of participation. We are hanging out together. Like maybe we're getting coffee or whatever, but that doesn't make them a friend. If they are a friend, like, you know, it, it's already gotten to the point where there is a, a strong enough connection to call each other a friend. But I think so often we go out trying to find friends and like, friend, friend, you know, do you like me? Like, are we friends now? Um, and that's, it's just not something, it, it doesn't work that way. And understanding how friendship actually develops and is maintained helped me a lot with my rejection sensitivity because there's a big difference between my friend stood me up for coffee and this person I just met that I'm just in this circle of participation with didn't show up for coffee. Cool. I guess we're not going to be friends. It doesn't hurt as much. It's also useful for ADHD folks, right? Because one of the things I've learned as an ADHD person is every now and then I meet somebody and we just click. And like, Mm -hmm. we are friends now. Like there are folks (laughs) that I've met once and like, boom, now we're friends, right? Like Carrie at the ADHD conference, we met in a workshop and we're like, you're great. You're great. And now we're friends like that. But that doesn't happen all the time. And I've also had folks that I met and clicked with right away. And it turned out like, they're not the best person for me to be friends with. Cause there are folks out there who know how to click with you right away. And the ADHD sort of need for friends and that desperation Mm. to connect with people 
they can read that and they're like, okay, cool. I can, I can just magically get this person. You you bring up a really good point, which is that like, yes, you can naturally have this zing with people, but there are people who can manufacture that and know how to, to fake it. And you can't really know the difference immediately. And so that's why friendship is really something that happens over time. Because if you, if you go, oh my God, I'm clicked with this person so hard and you now share your life story with them, that puts you at risk. And yeah. it's something that, that we do. And Caroline talks about this a lot, like rushing into friendships because we want to have that deep level of connection with somebody. Of course we do. But if we act like it already exists, then we're going to share things and do things on a level that is maybe not safe for us because we don't actually know this person yet, right? Like we haven't built up that trust over time. And so she talks about like, testing the waters, like share something with them and see what they do with that information. But don't tell them your whole life story right, right away. It's hard, you know, ADHD years, like we, we overshare and we info dump and stuff like that. But at the very least, let's make sure that it's reciprocal, right? If we're, if we're oversharing, let's make sure they're oversharing back at the very least, because if we just overshare ourselves and then they're not giving us very much other than encouragement and attention, it puts us at risk. And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Remember that when you're struggling with something, there's a reason you're struggling. Often it's just, it's, it's not compatible. Like whatever you're trying to do is not super compatible with your brain. And so, you know, there are things you can do. You can, you can modify the environment or the thing that you're trying to in, engage with, or you can use, you can use an adapter, you can use a tool, you can use a strategy, um, or you can, you know, you can, to a certain degree, modify your brain. You can take medication, you can exercise, you can meditate, you know, you can go to therapy. It's not a personal failing. It's not an issue of effort. Usually when it comes to ADHD, there's a reason you're struggling. If, the, if you're struggling, there's a reason you're struggling. If your child is struggling, there's a reason that they're struggling. And really getting down to what that reason is and, and what you can do about it, and I think is, is definitely more helpful than just getting frustrated with yourself or frustrated with your child and pushing them to, to try harder. Because um, we know, we just know like trying harder is not the answer. Um, there's so many of us like running around burnt out and, and exhausted out here who have been who, who grew up just thinking like, Oh, I just try harder, do better, try harder, do better. And it's so much more helpful to try different. And just so people know where to buy the book, where do you want to send them? Uh, everywhere books are sold, you can go to howtoadhdbook.com. And you can also scroll down to the bottom of that page and get a pre order gift, which is good for um, I think through the first week of the book coming out, um, you can get that pre-order gift as well. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.